Lovely, Michelle. Thank you. I, uh, I am quite pumped, but I got tricked into the series. So uh, uh, every now and again, uh, we take well, we take on turns as preachers to write the series. And so Matt Knight, who is one of the most organized, and he, he has a very simple faith, very strong faith. The guy's given away eight cars. Who does that? He's given away eight cars. He leads our Kloof community. Uh, he says to me, Ross, we need as a church to do The Ruthless Elimination of Harry, which is a book written by Mark Comer, which I really encourage you to get. And, uh, and so he writes it. And because I'll tell you about a few of my issues in a moment, but because of some of my issues, I said to him, I said, Matt, you know what? I'm just going to skip preaching on this one. And he said, Ross, I really don't think that's good for the church. I think you need to preach. But what he was actually saying is I think this is really good for you. So anyway, I, I, st- I got into this, and, uh, and I've just been on leave practicing the ruthless elimination of Harry. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But, but here's what I want you to know about your brains. Your brains are wired so that you pick up two negative things for every positive thing. Two negative things come in for every positive thing. Let me help you understand. Your eyes are literally designed to pick up twice as much in the dark as they do in the light. And every aspect of your brain is wired this way. You, you are likely to struggle with some form of phobia or anxiety the whole way through until you work out how to manage that. You and me. I got a whole bunch more than, than I think the next person. I, I was just kind of thinking about it. I got sharks, snakes, Heights, like you name it, speaking in public, they all came my way. How many of you are scared of sharks? Just, just. How many of you won't swim in the sea because you're scared of sharks? No, okay, well, thank you for a few honest people. I, I was thinking about this. It is a ridiculous fear. Sorry, I don't mean to make fun of your fear, but uh, it is a ridiculous fear. I've, I've had it as well. But, but here's the thing 10 people a year die from shark attacks. They're like, they're, there are a few of us on this planet. 130 million die from car accidents. 150 people a year die from coconuts falling on their heads. Just so you know, next time you go on holiday, don't worry about the water, worry about the coconuts. Like, coconuts are coming. Heights. How many of you scared of heights? Yeah. I have another fear, which I'll tell you about in a moment, that, that tried to get me to get over the fear of heights by jumping out of a plane, didn't work. Uh, fear, of, fear of heights, fear of public speaking. Should be about 30% of us terrified. I, I grew up terrified of public speaking until I got saved at the age of 21. I got saved, and uh, that year they asked me to preach. I broke the church, but uh, God delivered me from my fear of public speaking. Fear of snakes. Let's not be racist. Black people, put up your hands. I know the truth. <laughs> you and me, yeah, we are scared. In fact, uh, this, is, this is a white person problem. My kids love playing with snakes. And when they touch the snake, I want to get the shotgun. Like, that's just how I think. And, uh, and they love it because some guy decided it would be clever to come visit my house with a python when I was like four or five years old. And I've been terrified ever since. I use shotguns and shambucks on them. It's just kind of how I grew up. But the thing that I, I realized is a problem in my life, is fear of missing out, FOMO. I, I struggle with FOMO. 
In fact, I struggle with FOMO so much that most people overcome it by about 30. I'm 44 and I'm still going strong. I, I just want to have everything. I don't want to miss out on anything. I, I realized, I was, I was just kind of thinking about this whilst I was on, uh, on leave. I was shaving and my razor ran out of power. And so I was left with a, with a mustache, which basically made me look a bit like a pedophile. So my, my kids told me. And, uh, and it, I thought about it. I realized that has happened to me so many times. Because the surf has been good, and there's been something that I have to be at, and so I'll shoot down to the surf, grab my razor as I go, which is a bit disgusting, and, and race to the surf, and I'll be shaving. And one day I had a conference, I was shaving, 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 and I got halfway across my face, and then it just went zzz. And then I had to grab, like a dry, I found a dry razor somewhere, and, and I literally plucked yeah, it was, it was teach me. FOMO. FOMO is part of my life. I, I realize I just want to enjoy that and that and that and all at the same time, if I possibly can. And so when this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Harry came out, I had friend after friend after friend saying to me, Ross, you need to read this. And then my wife went and bought it on my Kindle and said, babe, I think you need to read this because it is so important. So I am a recovering addict of Harry. So we're going on this journey together, and it will be good for all of us as we go through it. But uh, what I realized is there are probably a whole bunch of you who, uh, who haven't, uh, you weren't here last week, so you don't know what this whole hurry thing is about. And so last week, Shane opened it up, and, and, and basically the, the primary thought is this. Corrie Ten Boom, she said this, she said, if the devil can't get you to sin, he will get you busy. Because both sin and busyness squeeze out the life of God, the life of relationships with one another, and the life of a relationship with yourself from you. If he can't get you to sin, he'll get you busy. So I, I went on this leave, and uh, and it was a bit of a trick because I knew I was coming back to preach this, so I had to practice it. Friends, it was amazing. I, I literally, I turned off my phone. I'm so sorry if you messaged me with something that I urgently needed to do because my phone was off. I needed to practice my preach. And uh, I, I slept. I went to bed when my kids went to bed. I, I averaged between nine and 11 hours sleep a night. I, I watched over two weeks or 10 days or whatever, I watched three hours of TV, I, I watched Men in Black with my kids and a little bit of sing. It, it was just the rest of the time I was familying and sleeping a lot. Read three books. I, I taught my little girl how to kite surf. I forgot that she was 30 kgs. <laughs> I had to fetch her, but then once I brought her back, I, I tied her to me with with these like cable things. And, uh, and she would go up in the air and scream with delight as she was, she was up in the air and then she would come back down. But I realized as I was practicing the ruthless elimination of Harry, I could feel the life and the love and the goodness of God coming into, into me. See, this busyness, this hurry that we live in, it literally, it strangles your soul. Because you, you can't have rush 
and love. You can't have busyness and love. They're, they're, like, they're like oil and water. They don't mix. You, you never talk about my run with God. You talk about my walk with God. Jesus, Jesus walked everywhere. He was unhurried. There's a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. He's like, most pastors kind of go, there's Jesus, then there's like maybe Paul and a couple of the disciples, and then there's Dallas Willard. He's just like, he's that theologian who just emanates Christ. And he was asked, when you think about Jesus, what do you think about? And his answer was, relaxed. And one pastor asked him and said, if I'm going to get my soul back, how am I going to get it back? And, and his answer was, and this is how this book came about, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Because it will squeeze the life of God out of you. You see, hurry is not just a disordered schedule. It is a disordered heart. It's a heart in a rush. You, you never think about Jesus in such a hurry that he said to the person, I'm sorry, I know you're blind, but tomorrow. <laughs> you never think about Jesus getting irritable. He was just unhurried because love is patient. Love is kind. Shane did a little hurry sickness test, basically to make you all feel guilty. And just in case some of you think this isn't for you, let's just quickly dive through it to make you feel guilty. He said, if you struggle with hurry sickness, here are 10 things that will show it. Firstly is irritability. Next time you try to get your three kids and your B-type wife into the car to get to church on time. How many of you had a fight on the way to church? Just smile and wave. There we go. I love you all. Hypersensitivity. If you're struggling with rushing, all it takes is a little comment and you get agitated as anything. Restlessness. Even when you try to read the Bible, you, you, find, it, you find yourself getting distracted and bored. When you try and spend time with God, you just, you can't engage. Your mind's all over the show. Non-stop activity. You're still working at 10 o'clock at night. Your phone's binging, you're sending emails. You wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is check your mail. What is this? This is hurry has got inside of you. Emotional numbness. You want to care, but when you see that person, you just honestly don't have the capacity. Out of order priorities. You feel disconnected from who God calls you to be, who you are, your identity and your calling. Lack of care for your body. You've got no time for basics like sleep and eating right and exercise. Escapist behaviors. This is a big one. You find yourself toiling through the day so that you can social media, Netflix, and entertain yourself at night. You're escaping. Slippage of, of spiritual disciplines. Let's face it, when you're over, over busy, the hardest thing it is to do is to sit down and have a quiet moment with God. And lastly, isolation. If you have hurry sickness, you will find yourself not known and not knowing others. There will be so much of your life that is hidden from the rest of the world. It's a result of hurry. The world didn't start with hurry, though. 
In fact, Harry kind of kicked in in about nine, uh, uh, sorry, 1370, when the first clock in Germany was, elected, uh, was erected. Not elected, erected. It was, it was put in the middle of a tower, on a tower, in the middle of Cologne. Now, you've got to remember this. Bells and clocks were monks' ideas. And the reason they were invented was to keep us in rhythm, that we would pray at certain times, that we would stop and read scripture at certain times, that our lives would follow a rhythm. But once they stuck that up, it just set us up for the industrial revolution where we would know that you would be at work at this certain time and you would end at this certain time and you would be efficient and it would start something off. In 1870, the next big thing hit, Edison invented the light bulb. And from that moment, we went from that agrarian kind of living in a circadian rhythm of waking up when the sun rises and going to sleep when the sun sets. You know, if you struggle with sleep, how many of you struggle to sleep? You know, you know the best way to solve that? Wake up right as the sun comes up and make sure you get outside and look. It kicks off your brain producing hormones that will put you to sleep at eight o'clock at night. Amazing. But once the light bulb got invented, we, we started working later and doing more. You know that before Edison, the average person slept 11 hours a night. 11 hours, can you imagine? Do you know what a nightmare I would be if I slept for 11 hours a night? I would be an energizer bunny of night. <laughs> 11 hours. Skip forward a little bit more. 2007 pictures up. In fact, before that, futurists in the 60s, so, so these were like the secular prophets. They, they came and they actually presented to the US Parliament on the troubles that we would face right now. And their ideas were that by this stage in the world's development, people would work an average of 27 hours a week. We would need to take off 22 days because we would just have so much time because technology would take care of all our problems. Don't you love that prediction? In 2007, Steve Jobs grabbed one of these, a little bit older, and he held it up and he basically said, here is the future of the world. This thing will solve your problems. And the truth is, it is remarkable. At the same time, Facebook kind of became public entity for anyone who had an email address and, and Twitter launched and kind of apps went mad. And in that moment, we started to get consistently and constantly inundated with work. And work began to blend into our lives. And slowly, the life of God kind of got strangled out of us as we got more and more distracted. You know, the average person, they say, touches their phones, kind of gross, 2,617 times a day. It's weird how much we touch it. And you know how this thing works, the, the way this economically works is through marketing. And the purpose of marketing is to get your attention. Now, here's what you need to know about your attention. Whatever you give your attention to will determine who you become. So marketing is trying to get your attention because if it gets your attention, then you will buy, most likely. 
Well, our attention spans pre this thing were 12 seconds, which isn't particularly impressive. Today, the average person's attention span is around eight seconds. Just so you know, a goldfish's attention span is nine seconds. <laughs> we are getting dumber and dumber and more and more tired. We are toiling. And this is, this is kind of where I realized this, this message needed to go. <clears throat> the way it actually came about was during COVID. I, um, I, I'm a surfer, so I got all three waves of COVID. One, one after the next. And, and during COVID, you are so sick, um, the earlier stages, now it's just flu, but you are so sick and your head hurts so much, or mind it, that you can't read. And so what I did was I just binge watched. And so I watched as many series as a millennial. I just watched series after series after series, and I was basically trying to numb my brain so I didn't have to feel COVID. And I chatted to my one mate, and he was also a pastor, and I said, he said to me, what did you do whilst you had COVID? I said, I just watched series after series. It was like mind-numbing. It was amazing. And he said to me, and how did you feel afterwards? And I said, I'm not too sure. And he said, I felt sick, soul sick. And I thought about it. And I realized I'd got soul sick through this, the entertainment. See, the way we live right now, the, the thing the world promises right now is that if you toil hard enough, you will create enough resource or enough money or enough whatever you need to entertain. So we toil five days a week so that we can go away for two days a week. And we work as hard as we can for eight or nine or 10 hours so that we can entertain ourselves for three or four hours. And if you look around you realize people are sicker and tireder and, and more and more empty of soul. This series is about getting your soul back. And so to get into it, I want you to pray for one another. I want you to literally trust the life and power of God to touch the other person. Now, I don't want you all to hug. Don't do that, please, it's annoying. I want you to pray for one person. I want you to put your hand on their shoulder, one person. If there's someone left out, you can pray for them too. Okay, but one hand on someone's shoulder. Just put your hand on someone's shoulder. There we go. And I want you to pray believing. I mean, if we really have a God that we all believe we do, then he's powerful. I want you to pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, Rejuvenate, rejuvenate this person. Amen. Okay, let's get into this message, how to get your soul back. In Matthew 6.16, it says this. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people would, would, I will learn to speak again, will admire them for their fasting. Notice what it says. It says, and when you fast. It doesn't say, and if you fast. And when you fast. Now, I've never seen anybody try to make themselves look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. But when you fast, 
And then it says, again, but when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, then no one will notice that you are fasting except your father who knows what you do in private and you, your father who sees everything will reward you. I'm gonna preach to you today. I, I basically have two points. You need to fast and you need to feast. Fast and feast. If you don't fast some things, you will never be able to taste of the feast of other things. If you want to get your soul back, you have to fast. Then it goes on and says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you, actually, you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Now, this sounds a little bit random, this whole light eye thing. Where's he going with that? In Jewish thought, Hebrew thought, they believed, it's, we, we kind of know this, that light comes out your eye. Now, we know scientifically it goes into your eye, but, but you've looked at people that have, it's like light is emanating from their face. You, you feel like, man, that person is just so alive. And you've seen other people who you look at, and by just looking at them, you get tired. You, you know those people. Some of you married to them. You, you can feel that. Well, the, the way the Jews believe this worked is that A light eye was someone with generosity of spirit. That their starting place was how can I give out of the abundance of my soul? How does my generous, how can my generosity flow to you? How can I give what I have to you? A person with dark eyes was a person whose soul was filled with lust and greed and basically was going, how can I take from you? How can I take your soul and suck the life out of you? Someone told me in the first service, Ross, you were looking so relaxed. I was trying to take what was inside of you, out of you. Basically, dark-eyed person. That's, that's what was going on. And we know what it feels like to be dark-eyed. You see, there's a numbness and a depth of despair that has entered into people's hearts and souls who have been living this life of toil, toil, toil so that I can entertain, entertain, entertain. You've just done it so long and you can feel it when your soul is just empty of life. And so Jesus goes on and he says this. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, there are some things that I cannot lie. We either don't trust Jesus on, you and me, we're all the same boat, or we'd just rather not hear from him about. One of them is money. Now, now here's the good news. I'm not going to ask you for any, so you can relax. But the reason we struggle to trust Jesus with money is because Jesus didn't have stuff. No house, no car. He, he, he didn't 
have stuff. Clothes, it didn't seem like he had a whole bunch. It wasn't like he was huge suitcase on wheels walking around. It, it feels like Jesus was the utmost when it came to being a minimalist. He, he just, it was just him, jawling, which for you and me feels impossible to be happy because we've done camping and it sucked. <laughs> but here's the message of Jesus. I've had heaven, and I've lived on earth, and the joy that I carry doesn't come from the stuff that I have, but from the relationship with the Father that I'm with. But he says this fascinating statement. He says, you can't worship or serve both God and mammon. Now, that word mammon you know, when the, when the writers of the New Testament, when they wrote the text, they translated from Aramaic into Greek so that more people could read the text. But every now and again, they'd leave an Aramaic word. Mammon is an Aramaic word. It, it's, it can be translated. You could translate it money or wealth, but the, the writers didn't want us to do that. In fact, most New Testament scholars will tell you that the reason they didn't want you to do that was because mammon is not a thing, it's a person or personality. It's a spirit, a demonic power. Mammon is a force, and mammon drives hurry. Let me try and explain to you. You see, mammon promises you money, and with money you get power. So how many of you remember when you first moved into a new place and you got a whole bunch of mates to help you move in? You don't remember those, those experiences? Because you didn't have enough money for the removal company. So the mates came along. And do you remember how much you enjoyed it? Like the connections and dropping the chair and the sofa on someone's toe and the laughs and then eating... KFC afterwards, or whatever you did, like you just remember the joy of depending on one another and caring for one another and loving one another. And it was hard and it sucked. And they owed you lots afterwards, but you remember the connection. Well, Mammon promises the opposite. Mammon promises if you make enough money, you'll get the power to pay the rental guy and he'll do it all. Let me, let me show you some cool stuff that'll make you lust after mammon. Let me, let me show you some stuff. Okay, show me a picture. Those, what are they called again? Those are called bionic boots. You can run almost as fast as Hussein Bolt in, in those. So basically, my dad, who's 80-something, could come sprinting past me if he had a pair of those. That would be amazing. Those things work like ostriches, so you run this way, ostriches run that way. Those things work like that, and they make you quick. They've been, they've been working on these for ages. They've got an exoskeleton, similar kind of principle, that they designed for the U.S. Army that enables people to walk around with 90 kgs on their back as though it's absolutely nothing. No need for a removal company if you've got the exoskeleton and the boots. Okay, you don't seem that impressed. I thought they were cool. Okay, let me show you something else then. That thing that looks like a killer whale. I've forgotten what its name. 
It's called a sea breachery wire. It's only worth 85,000 US dollars, but it goes at 80 kilometers an hour on top of the water, and then it goes under the water, and then on top, and then you can basically dolphin it. And you can go far, like you can go jawling. I mean, you could live on the south coast coming through the harbor to work. Okay, let's, let's show the next one. Okay, so that drone, this thing, this thing would revolutionize the world. We would all live in the bluff if we could get one of these. <laughs> Views for days. Half of you are from the bluff, I'm joking. <laughs> you just plug in the GPS coordinates and up it goes and down it goes. You, don't, you can read a book on the way to work. This thing is amazing. It would revolutionize Everything. Cars, what for? Imagine having that thing. Okay, still, you're unimpressed. Okay, last thing. This little robot, it's definitely Asian, agree? <laughs> okay, this little robot is designed, it's, the tech's not quite there yet, but is designed so that it has little cameras in your pantry and fridge that pick up everything that's there, compare it against what you would normally fill your pantry and fridge with, and then tells you what to buy as you walk into the supermarket. Then it goes through the aisles getting the stuff for you as you walk along next to it, and you go, ah, I'll have that as well. And you start putting, it takes you through to the till and pays, and you walk out. Pretty cool. Now, you know what these things are promising? They're promising that if you have enough money, you'll gain the power to live independently and free. You will be happy. And the truth about you and me is that we've been hooked. And of course we've been hooked. We get bombarded by adv advertising every two seconds. You watch a YouTube video and you get an advert halfway through. You want to headbutt your phone. Why? Because... Because that's how the world works. That's how mammon works. And here's what mammon keeps promising. Come worship me. Come toil your life away. And I will give you the thing that will give you the power to be happy. And our souls are dying. And I was in St. Francis now this weekend. And uh, it, was, it was so beautiful. I was staying in a friend's of a friend's house kind of vibe. And... Um, and I looked in their garage. And you know those garages that have a boat and another little boat and skis? And like everywhere I looked were toys. And I'm male, so toys are like, we, we just need big toys. And, and I looked at all of these things and I thought to myself, this would make me so happy. <laughs> and I think Jesus looked at me and said, Ross, but I'll make you happier. And that will give you joy in a moment. But it will lead to isolation. If you, don't, if you make mammon your God, it will lead to you living for yourself, isolated and empty eyes, dark eyes. But if you make me the center, I will make your eyes light. So he says, I want you to think about two things and I want you to do two things. He says, firstly, 
don't worry. Don't worry. Mammon, the God of money, Mammon, needs you to worry. What are you worrying about? Because Mammon doesn't work unless you're worrying. You, you won't toil unless you worry. So he says, don't worry. Let me, let me just read the text. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or clothes or the latest iPhone or the Kilowell thingy. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothes? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying what we eat, what we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Rather, seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Do not worry. And then he says, Store your treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's, he's basically going, be smart about your desires. Redirect your desires to what matters. Don't worry. Redirect your desires. You see, mammon needs you to worry, needs you to lust needs you to go after these two things. God goes, don't worry, desire me. I'll take care of what you actually need. You and I think we need a bit of God and a lot of stuff. And God's going, fast your desires and desire me and feast on me. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to fast something. Maybe it's fast your phone. Maybe it's fast social media. Maybe, maybe it's fast all your escapism, your Netflix or whatever it is. Maybe it's fast food. Not fast food. <laughs> maybe it's that too. Fast something. Fast something that mammon is driving you to. Fast reading your emails first thing in the morning. Fast doing work at night. Fast something. And then feast on something. There's a, there's a couple at the back who've been in this church for a long time, and they've been Christians, incredibly sacrificial Christians for ages. And I was with some Durban North Life Group leaders, and we were talking to them because they've got older kids, and we've all got little kids. And we were saying, how on earth did you do kids when you were growing up? And they said, we just took our kids everywhere. We went to lots of church, our kids can. And to which all of our minds are going like, 
do you know how much homework, how many sports extracurriculum, how on earth do you do that? And they said, man, it's hard. But you just do it. And the result is that your kids grow up together laughing and getting to know Jesus and seeing you live out your Christianity and at the end of it, your kids are richer than, than the kids around and they love church and they love Jesus because they got to do it together. You know what Mammon says? Pay a babysitter. Go out, get your time. I was thinking about that. And I, as I was thinking about that, I stumbled on a verse. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna wrap up with this. It's in Romans 16, 22. It says this. It's a random verse. It's one of those verses you just like pass over. It says, I tertius. Tertius. Tertius means three. So in the Roman times, you'd have your firstborn son who mattered, who you'd give a na- real name to. You'd call him like Daryl. Then it would be two, three, and four. That's basically what happened. I, Tertius, I, the dude who mattered so little that my parents called me a number. So what's going on here? Who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Then he goes, Gaius, who's an important person. The fact that he's got that specific name shows that he's wealthy. He's come from a wealthy family. He's important. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, basically a city manager, and our brother, Cortus. <laughs> Some of you not smiling. Three, and Cortus, four. <laughs> Send you their greetings. I want to just end with this, directing your treasure. Gaius has got lots of treasure. And so he says to three and four, come join at my spot. Come eat a meal with me. We'll break bread together. We'll put Christ back in the center. We'll fast Netflix this week. We'll just be. We'll feast together. He says to his mate Erastus, who's really important, won't you come as well? And then Paul, who's writing the letter. Remember, letters in those days were incredibly expensive. The paper was expensive. The pen was expensive. Getting it there was expensive. Paper, the whole thing was expensive. Paul's busy writing probably the most critical letter in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. And he goes, he stops for a moment. And he goes, three, Tertius, you greet them. You know what would have happened to the readers of this text when they read it? They would have gone, Paul, I get. Tertius greets me in the name of the Lord Jesus. They eat at a table together. Three and four. His treasure, Gaius, had made his treasure the kingdom of God and he had created a feast and that feast rippled across through this letter, across centuries and across all of Europe and it obliterated aspects of slavery across the world. You see, where your treasure is, 
it will shape where your heart goes and it will shape the effect you have on the world around you. So feast something. This week, fast something. This week, feast something. And if you don't, don't come back to church next Sunday. I'm going to pray for you. Jesus, we want light eyes. God, we want to get out from under mammon. So help us to feast and to fast and touch our hearts and minds and souls in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Go outside. Feast on our coffee. God.